Hi there. Welcome to Conversations with the Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Bueno. Conversations with the Wounded Healer is a show where I interview other people in healing professions about the intersectional journey of healing self while caring for others. And this episode is, there are a lot of intersections in this episode, and it's it's really important. I'm kind of speechless because I literally just finished the interview with Robin and I'm inspired and my heart aches and I need to take a nap. <laughs> this conversation just it just really meant a lot to me and Robin and all the work they do, I'm just kind of blown away. So let me tell you who I'm talking about first before I do anything else. So Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza has been described in a myriad of ways, a scholar activist, scholar leader, thought leader, teacher, public theologian, ethicist, poet of moral reason, and word artist. They are also a visionary thinker who has spent two decades working in the hybrid space of church, academy, and movements, seeking to not only disrupt but dismantle supremacy culture by focusing their PhD studies on new concepts of being and becoming, decolonizing knowledge production, and bridging with radical difference. They enflesh a deep hope of collaborating in these hybrid spaces where their work seeks to contribute to the ongoing work of collective liberation. Activist theology as a disciplinary offshoot of liberation theology and movement idea has been incubating since 2008 with Dr. Robin and further developed throughout their doctoral program and engagement with movement leaders. Now activist theology has the chance to emerge as a collaborative project. Dr. Robin was named one of 10 faith leaders to watch by the Center for American Progress in 2018. As a scholar activist, Dr. Robin is committed to translating theory into action so that our work in the hybrid spaces reflect the deep spiritual work of transforming self to transform the world. Dr. Robin writes and creates both academic and other valuable resources, including digital resources. Dr. Robin is a non-binary trans queer Latinx who calls Nashville, Tennessee home. So, this episode contains the word Jesus. Don't worry, it's not too much Jesus for you. We talk a lot about white supremacy. We talk a lot about racism. And at the time that we're recording this, there's a lot of stuff happening in the world. So this is a heavy episode and it's really, really important. And it's also not without joy and love. And Dr. Robin describes their work as very relational, and I truly felt very, very connected to them throughout this episode. So I hope that you'll also connect with them and that you will check out all of their stuff in order to do your own healing work for racial justice. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode with Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza. Hello, Dr. Robin. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. It's really, yes. it's really great to be here. And I'm excited for what we're going to talk about today. I'm excited too, because I really have no idea. We're just going to see where this goes. And there's a yeah. lot of life, a lot of life happening outside of my closet right now. So yeah. Yes. Well, why don't we just jump in and have you tell people who you are and what you do to kind of set the stage for this convo? Yeah. So who I am, I am a transgender Latinx. I'm born of a Mexican woman and an Anglo father, which means I'm mixed race. And I move in the world as a white passing Latinx, which means that I move with power, access and privilege. But I still very much identify as a white passing person of color. And um, what I do in the world is 
I do what is called public theology or public scholarship or engaged scholarship. And I talk about supremacy culture and a way that we can do harm reduction by understanding the theological and ideological roots of supremacy culture. Mm -hmm. That's what I do. You know, just easy stuff. Right. Super light, super breezy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) At a cocktail party, people are just like, I just can't wait to talk to Robin. Right. 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 Yeah. You know, I I have to get my elevator speech, you know, because when I'm at when I used to go to cocktail parties back when we could gather. We could. Right. Right. You know, people were always very curious. What what do you do? And when I would say, oh, I do public theology. Their next question is, well, what is that? And I'm like, Mm -hmm. well, I just try to make the world a better place. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is different from then, you know, because I, I don't know much about the academic study and then moving into public theology, but it's obviously different than deciding to be a pastor, right? And and do some pastoral care. Right, right. Which I do my fair amount of pastoral care with people. And I do, I, I spent a year, I, I lived in Chicago and I went to grad school in Chicago. So oh, right, I'm, right. New, I'm very, Northwestern? Yep, yep, yeah, yep. Okay. And I did a year chaplain residency in Chicago and got my hands dirty with pastoral care and working in the hospital. And I worked with very sick people who needed a lot of care and their families needed care. So I'm well versed with providing pastoral care in the midst of doing activist work. Right. Well, and I think the interesting thing is... So I'll just tell you a little bit about my ground, my background that kind of gives you context for the story. So I grew up in a Methodist uh, church and my my mom was very religious. And so, you know, I spent a lot of time and then like many people do in college, go away from it and then came back to my own sense of spirituality after my parents' death. And I noticed not only in my experience in the church, but watching my mom's experience later as I left, that there's this tiny little bubble that can happen within a church community where, much like Facebook, right, we're all kind of like literally preaching to the choir to our own audiences. And so I hear your work as really this stepping outside of that in order to have diverse conversation. Yeah, I I straddle both worlds. I'm also a visiting professor at Duke. And so I teach at Duke Divinity School every year. And and in them, you know, I kind of look at my work as for the academy, for the movement and for the church and trying to bridge together these three disparate institutions, which are not addressing systemic violence or systemic oppression in a manner that would produce social healing. So, you know, my work is at the intersections of systemic analysis and lived experience. And and I I do this work so that we can have social healing. So it very much is healing justice. It very much is rooted in care of the soul or care of the person. But it does require stepping out of normative institutions to do it. Well, let's backtrack a little bit because I'd love for you to to share with folks how how you got here. And I I reached out to you because I heard you speak on Pete Holmes' podcast, which I yeah. absolutely adore. And I just I I really loved your story and and all the ways that you're willing to be vulnerable with people. So yeah. wherever it feels appropriate for you to start. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, my story is I was 
enamored with the big questions in life. Hmm. Who are we? Where do we come from? What does it mean to be human? How do we have more love in the world? Is revolution possible? You know, I was, as a young person, I was just enamored with these questions. How do we create a better world? And I grew up in Texas and I I lived with my mother for the first 12 years of my life. And that didn't work out for me. So I left and went to live with my dad. And I just fell in love with theology. And I started reading, you know, like as a young person, I started reading the discourse (laughs) that you would read in college. Yeah. And and it just carried me. And so I went on to study theology for my undergrad and then went to Northwestern for my master's. And, you know, moving to Chicago from Texas, I didn't have a coat. I showed up with jeans and a T-shirt and I learned very quickly that I needed a coat. And so, you know, I bought my bought my first coat in my mid 20s in in Chicago. And I knew in college that I wanted to be a teacher of some sort. Oh, I, I I didn't have the language of being a professor, but I wanted to be a teacher. And the more I learned, the more I really saw myself as um, positioned to share a unique story, one that lives at multiple intersections of gender, sexuality, and race, and religion too, because... Part of my religious journey is uncovering my Mexican roots and uncovering indigenous spirituality and learning to suture the gap that was caused by white settler colonialism, which provided me an opportunity to do what I do today. But I've, you know, when people say, Who are you? Where do you come from? I always say, I'm born of a Mexican woman, not of this country, because that is who brought me into being. And my mother, who is brown, still faces racism and faces her own internalized oppression. And so I try to lift that up as much as possible because I'm of the generation. And because I'm white passing, I have this chance that mm-hmm, darker skinned yeah. people don't have, you mm-hmm. know. So I I started on this journey of studying theology and ethics at an early, early age and I'm still in love with the discourse. I think that a lot of our policies, politics, and legislation are rooted in a very particular orientation of Christian fundamentalism and a morality that upholds white supremacy. And so that's my work to help people connect the dots and help people see and and doing so from from an intersectional perspective that I believe that my opportunity as a white passing Latinx is to work with white people. And that's not to say that darker skinned people of color shouldn't have a voice. It just means that white people have consumed the wisdom of black people for centuries. And I believe that it is my call and vocation to work with white people, to get them to a place where they don't just consume black people or black knowledge and treat them as if they're they're mammy. Right. Well, because white people, because we are in power, we have to be able to give up the power right. and share the power. And so, of right. course, white people have to do the work. And I like to 
consider myself kind of at the early stages of my anti-racism journey. So I've been really interviewing a lot of people so that I can (laughs) consume the information and share it with other people. You know, some of my POC friends are like, I don't know what white people are thinking. And I'm like, I'll tell you, I'll tell you exactly what I thought, you know, five years ago before I understood any of this. And it was only 10 years ago that I heard the term white privilege for the first time. And that was so easy for me to move through the world without even knowing that right until i until i became a social worker right and then and then actually you know paid for that education to get that right um yeah so white people have to do the work so i'm really really glad that you're stepping into that space and especially you know when you bring up fundamentalism I can't even remember his name now, but I had listened to this Christian podcast where the where the guy really talks about fundamentalism. Yes, the same things, upholding white supremacy and actually really misconstruing the teachings of Jesus to use them for right. white supremacy. Exactly, exactly. So I try to say, you know, like Jesus was a revolutionary. Jesus was killed by the empire because... Jesus stood against what the empire was doing. But what we have in this country is empire religion. Say more about that. So I think that Christianity today in this country, in the United States, and really globally, is a kind of imperial religion or Mm. empire religion, that the roots of the practice and the belief system supports white governance. Mm-hmm. Can you unpack it's, that a little bit? Because I, yeah. I, feel, I, I feel the thread, but I, I yeah. want more. Yeah, it supports a kind of government that privileges the dominant. Yes. And yeah. and Jesus, you know, if we go back and, you know, I'm a theologian and I kind of like Jesus. And so I like to talk <laughs> about him a little bit because I think it's a I think he's a good historical figure to remember that life could be different. And so if we remember, Jesus pulled together 12 misfits, half of them, you know, some of them were tax collectors, they served the empire, and half of them were marginalized people, and they built community. And the beautiful thing about that is we know that it's possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it takes risk. So the work that I do in the Activist Theology Project which is something that I launched a couple years ago, I decided to leave my faculty post in Berkeley, California after the 2016 election and root myself back in the South and come to the American South and really do public theology from my roots. And instead of being this, you know, radical leftist academic who was living in the Bay Area, and, you know, I wanted to talk my, walk my talk and talk my walk, you know. So I moved back to the American South and was already involved in movement work at that time, but decided to launch my scholarship as a collaborative project. And so how do we how do we take theology and ethics, which, you know, I believe everything is theological, where you buy your groceries, where you buy your Mm. coffee, um, Mm. where you buy your music. Those are all theological decisions because, you know, like I always give the example of are we supporting Starbucks or are we supporting locally owned coffee shops that source their coffee beans from a justice oriented place? That's a theological decision. Why? Because all theology is ethics. Hmm. So it's not just about belief. Theology is about a practice in the world and practices, social practices are about our ethics. And ethics is about orientation. And ethics are different from values because I'm just thinking of 
some of the conservative Christian folks that I grew up with. And, you know, my values are like gay marriage isn't shouldn't be a thing. And so therefore, you know, we can choose to, you know, this bakery won't serve, you know, gay people. Da, 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 da. Can you can you describe the difference between ethics and values? Yeah. So values are things that we hold to be important in our lives. So like I value nonviolence. I value nonviolence and I also practice nonviolence. And my practice is an orientation and is tied to ethics. I value sustainability. So what is my practice? I decided, my partner and I decide to then buy our our veggies from a local farm because, because we value sustainability. So our values are things that are like our core beliefs. So you know, I value anti-violence in relationships or I value having inter- intimate partner relationships that are whole and caring and, you know, non-violent. So then what's my practice? My practice is my ethics and my practice is to build relationships that support my values. Does that right. make sense? It does. And as you were saying that, I was also thinking too, if conservative Christians who have this anti-gay, and I'm just using anti-gay because that's the first thing that comes to mind. It's, it's a great example. It's a great example because it, it it actually works. Right, right. And the anti-gay stance is violent, right? So any person who says, well, you know, nonviolence is a value I have. And I also have this value that, you know, being gay is a sin. Like those two things can't exist in the same right. space. Right. That's right. But if you try to point that out, then there's all sorts of Bible verses that people throw at you. Well, yeah. And <laughs> and when that happens, I remind them that they're taking it out of context. And I remind them when the scripture was written, to whom it was written, and the context in which it was written. And You know, a a lot of fundamentalists and conservative Christians, they are anti-intellectual. And so they don't value... Which is white supremacy. Which is white supremacy. They they don't value the history from which a text comes. So I do a lot of that work of explaining to people like, well, this was written in a certain context. I mean, just like, let's take the book of Revelation. John was exiled to an island because of empire. And the book of Revelation is an apocalyptic book, which just means John is unveiling the truth. Hmm. Much of what's happening right now. In literally. Country, literally. <laughs> literally. Locusts, like, uh, you know, flesh-eating hornets. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Plague, all of it. Yeah. yeah. You know, mm-hmm. the, the book of Revelation is actually a very apt book for right now because many of us who are fighting against supremacy culture feel exiled by the empire. And I think we should all be reading that first century apocalyptic book because we might learn a few things about what history has done, how it's repeated itself, and the power of empire and the ways in which it fortifies supremacy culture. Yeah. And actually from Pete Holmes, he had mentioned a book called The Fourth Turning, which I got. Have you heard of that one? Yep. Yeah. And it the guy who wrote it predicted everything that was happening now because history continues to repeat right. itself. And we don't have historical memory. We're right. just idiots in that way. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Well, it, and I would say that white people in particular don't have a historical memory. Black Americans, people of color, we have a historical memory. But it, it's a very particular amnesia that white people espouse that works to fortify their power, access, and privilege. Right. I mean, it's 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 actually very dangerous how, how we've created a country with no historical memory. I mean, let's just take the police, for example, because I'm thinking a lot about police violence and George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Tony Mc, McCade and, you know, the police. There was the Klan and mm, the Klan. Oh, oh, that truth. Oh, that hurts. And the Klan turned into the slave patrol. The slave patrol has become modern day police. Woof. Yeah. And we don't know that history as white people. God damn. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Wow. So well, that so that that's the work that I do. Telling the truth. <laughs> telling the fucking truth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know, one of my hopes in sharing with this audience, because you know, this podcast is really about healing at the core, you know, that's what it's about. And sometimes the conversation is about individual healing, but this is really speaking to the collective and we can't heal what we can't feel, right? Right. We know that in therapy. And so if we as white people are not feeling the pain of of history, then of course we're not going to, A, we're not going to see it and then we're not going to be able to heal it. Right. So my work, I believe, is social healing, and helping individual people connect the dots so that they can be different in the world. Yeah. So that we can get to a fold of social healing. Mm-hmm. I have so many questions. Where do I want to go first? Well, I'd like to tap into your soul space right now, because before we started, you said you're you're in it. I don't even yeah. remember the words that you used, but this is a really heavy week. And, and yeah. I'd love to give you space to to share whatever it is that's coming up for you. And yeah, you know. thanks. You know, I just before I got on the call with you, I just told my partner, I'm scared to leave the house. Mm. I'm a transgender person. I and full of tattoos, I might be perceived as a threat, even though I'm Mm -hmm. white passing. I'm scared to leave the house because I'm watching the police systematically execute Mm -hmm. my black siblings. Mm. And so I have some fear. I also have this attitude of fuck the police Mm -hmm. because we are witnessing a genocide of black America. And so I'm heart sick. I'm soul sick. I'm, I, this is, I mean, I should also say this has been happening for centuries. The killing of black America. It's more visible now because people are reporting about it because people have, you know, they're videotaping it, their social media. So it's, the events are more accessible to us. But let me tell you, I worry that we are on the cusp of a civil war. I literally was thinking that last night. Yeah, say more. Well, I think that there are enough people who are fed up with the ways in which Black America is being surveilled that I wouldn't blame Black America if they rose rose up. Yeah. They've been, you know, black people have been sub- subdued mm-hmm. for 400 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 
that shit will rise up somehow. Yeah. And so I wonder if we're on the cusp of a civil war and and I worry about more violence in the world, but people are tired of this. I'm tired of reading about my siblings being executed. Tony McDade um, in Tallahassee, Florida was shot and killed in broad daylight, a transgender man, a black transgender man. He's being misgendered by reports and that that's not okay. That's not okay. Right. So that's sort of where I am, just really broken and frustrated. And I think that white folks and white passing people, we have so much work to do. And I sometimes feel that I take one step forward and four steps back Mm -hmm. in the work. Yeah. I recently had a guy named Derek Dawson on the podcast, and he he's a Black man who spends all of his time doing anti-racism work. And I asked him this question, and same for you, how do you take care of yourself when mm. your work is, you are constantly fighting whether or yeah. not you want to be? Yeah. Well, I take a siesta every day. <gasps> well done. Every day, because I believe in honoring my Mexican ancestry and, and resting. But I have to be honest with you. I woke up today about 10 to 7, got up, paid the rent, whatnot, and went back to bed. And I stayed in bed and napped and rested until 1 p.m. Mm. Not because I was tired, but because the thought of looking at my phone and being on that screen or being on my computer, it exhausted me. And of course, I got up at one, I ate some avocado toast and a hard-boiled egg, had some water, and then opened, opened my phone and saw the news about Tony McDade. Right. So, you know, how I care for myself is I would probably go sit back on the front porch and meditate. Mm-hmm. But I'm currently in the process of building my toolbox of self-care, like I do the siesta every day and that's ritual and I'm very religious about that. But I've realized, I think in therapy and in conversation with my partner that I need more support in terms of building resilience. So, you know, I started going on walks. I started meditating. I'm starting a yoga practice on Tuesday. Hmm. And it's all to support the health of my body because if the body isn't well, then the mind and the heart won't be well. So I'm doing a lot of work around embodiment and getting into my body and caring for my body. And well, after I heard about George Floyd, I ended up making beans. Like the things, the thing that I needed to do was just reconnect with my roots. Mm. So I made a pot of beans. And so I, you know, I cook for self-care. I rest for self-care. And, you know, my partner is great who, you know, she can really see the affect and will remind me, you know, Robin, you you live at these multiple intersections of race, of gender, of sexuality, and that's a dangerous place to live. And like, thank God I'm white passing. What if I was darker skin, right? I would be I would be patrolled and surveilled mm-hmm. even more than I am now. Right. So those are a few things that I do to care for myself. Well, and one of the things that was brought to my attention recently is that self-care 
is only so effective in the context of the larger culture, right? And so community care and structural care are really what we need to be developing. And yet capitalism and white supremacy make that difficult. Right. That's right. That's right. Because we don't Absolutely. have health care or child care or yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. And and the thing about capitalism, capitalism is so violent. Like, for example, my partner doesn't have health care because it's too expensive for her to access the healthcare exchange. Right. Yep. And so we take vitamins every day. We, you know, we like do the best we can. I, I have healthcare because I go to the trans clinic so I can get my tea and everything. But I think one of the faults of, of capitalism is the privatization of goods and services. One of those being healthcare. Healthcare, right. Mm-hmm. That should be available for all. Mm-hmm. And that would be a community care plan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we live in a country where we automatically think that's socialized medicine and and we think that that's a liberal agenda. Well, I think it's a human agenda. Exactly. Why don't we want people to be cared for? <laughs> but, you know, Well, because we want to keep them down so that they don't rise up. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Well, and Jonathan Metzl, Dying of Whiteness, it's a brilliant book. It's a long book, but a brilliant book. Jonathan Metzl tells stories. He teaches at Vanderbilt and just a wonderful man. But he tells stories in this book how people with chronic illnesses chose not to join the Obamacare, what was known as Obamacare, because... They felt like it was socialized medicine. So they are literally killing oh, themselves. God. So people with wow. um, COPD and like really b- bad chronic illnesses chose not to sign up for health care and died as a result of it. So literally their whiteness is killing them. And, and we're seeing that. We're seeing that unfold more and more now. Mm-hmm. Well, people voting against their interests, right? Right, mm-hmm. right. It's just the the thing you can probably explain this to me because I, I've just the more that I learn about capitalism and white supremacy and all of this, like it's not like at the beginning of this, somebody was like, okay, we're gonna start this thing and then this ball's gonna get rolling and it's gonna be this great massive, like we are controlling races of people and they don't even know it. Like no one set out to do that. It became of itself and just like it's just fascinating and horrifying to me the way that this shaped itself right but it's by design (sighs) i mean yes and i guess my curiosity is is this really what they intended oh i think absolutely i mean nancy mclean writes in democracy and chains and recounts the history the economic history of how we got to where we are now and everybody should read that book democracy and chains nancy mclean And it's by design. It's about keeping people in power who can fortify white men with with economic status and social capital and disproportionately disenfranchise everybody else. It's like, and this is my privilege to want to believe that that's not true somehow, that people couldn't be that evil. Right. You know, but I know what you're saying is true. Yeah. I mean, I want to believe that we're better than this. Right. Mm -hmm. But the thing about white supremacy and capitalism is that 
in settler colonialism is that white people are greedy and they like their fucking power Mm -hmm. and they don't want to share power. It's fear, right? If I don't have my power, then who am I? Right. And, and that level of introspection is not, we don't like that, right? right? That's, that's threatening, just like conservatives don't like uh, intellect and, and academia right. because that's, that's too threatening, right? right? It's that's all right. about fucking fear. Mm-hmm. Which that fear, when it gets deep inside of us, it makes us sick. Yep. Physically, spiritually, psychologically, yeah. all of it. Yeah. Well, along along those lines, I, I have to beg the question, when you think of the term healing, in terms of your work, I know you said earlier you're a social healer. Would you put yourself in in the healer category? You know, I I don't know. I, I believe that my work is social healing, but you know, I feel like I am maybe just stepping in to being a healer because I'm stepping into the work of self healing. And I believe mm, yes. when we heal ourselves, we heal the world. And so for a long time, I have been a thinker and an academic. And over the past five years, four or five years, that orientation has shifted to being more in the public square. But, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know if I would call myself a healer. I'm just trying to make the world a better place. And one story at a time. And if that's healing, then great. But I mean, I look to people like my partner and so many others who actually have healing touch and can move energy and can listen with a depth of empathy that makes you feel whole. Mm. And I'm real good in crisis situations and I'm real good at responding and being with people, but I don't have healing touch, you know, never like, say never. Well, yeah, true. <laughs> true. And I'm, I'm excited to have your partner, Aaron on the show too. Yeah. 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 I mean, I just think that people like Aaron who, you know, Aaron is a former dancer and is so in her body and is a massage therapist and an energy worker. And, you know, when I think about being a healer, I think about people like her. You know, I think I think what I am is like a chaplain who facilitates healing by connecting people. So I facilitate healing. I'm not myself a healer. That I think that's how I think about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always just interesting to me what that word conjures for people. Yeah. And I, one of the things in the like woo woo spiritual community that I think keeps us down is a spiritual bypass and sometimes floating above all this conflict about, you know, racism and capitalism and all of it. And so if we only consider those type of people, quote unquote, as healers, I think that's a disservice to people like you who really are, like you say on your podcast, getting your hands dirty, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that you know the work of the work of healing we know is is self it's interpersonal it's societal you know it's universal right mm-hmm. and so my participation in healing justice is to facilitate healing and sometimes that means connecting people with the right people yeah 
Well, how do you feel about the term wounded healer? Yeah, I mean, I think as a person who has faced many wounds from sexual violence to child abuse to harassment, gender violence, I live the intersection of many wounds. And I hope that my work speaks from the scars and not the wounds. Mm. I want to let that breathe for a second. I hope that my work lives from the scars and not the wounds. Yeah. I really love that. Yeah. Mm. I hope that my work as a person who has been wounded by systemic violence, gender violence, etc. I hope that my work helps facilitate scars instead of more woundedness. And 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 I think and I actually think it's conversations like these where we come together across lines of deep difference and and we figure out a way to be connected and that that connection facilitates healing. Right. I mean, if we think about abortion, you know, nobody wants babies to die. Right. Everybody agrees on that. Literally right. everyone. <laughs> right. So why couldn't we come together and use that common ground? That's mm -hmm. that's it's just. Mm. Also, I wanted to speak to, you know, in terms of the wounded healer, one of the things that continuously comes up with that term, you know, like you said, acting from the scars instead of the wounds. It's like I'm working with this trauma healing modality called NARM, and they talk about being in child consciousness versus adult consciousness. And uh -huh. if we are living from our wounds, if we're acting out of child conscience, consciousness, then it's not actually perpetuating the healing work because it often creates more noise right. within the context of what is already extraordinarily noisy. Right. But when we're able to be in that quiet knowing, that faith, that, yeah, that scar of like, I've been through something and I know something and I'm willing to share this with you and I'm asking you to join me, right? That's so much different than you know, putting your dukes up and just punching people in the face. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Metaphorically and physically. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the work of coming together is our work. I think that white people don't know how to be in community. I think that white people don't know how to foster togetherness. And one of the sort of values of the Activist Theology Project, which is my organization that I founded and co-direct with Anna Galladay, is an ethics of incojunto. It's an ethics of togetherness, because if we are together in a practice of being human with one another, we can actually reshape our democracy. But we first have to figure out how to be together. Right. And we don't know how to do that. Well, and that actually brings to mind a question that I wanted to ask earlier, and I'll ask it in the, you know, kitschy and cute way and then unpack it. But like, so how's it going? <laughs> and by that, I mean, like when you are, you know, in front of somebody who's you know, spouting the out of context Bible verses, the people who are just like, no, you're wrong. And I won't listen to you because you're trans or whatever it is that yeah. they throw at you. How is that going? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I tend to do it over a meal and it's hard to hate people Ooh. over a meal. And so well, I like to pride myself on being a, a good cook. And so, yeah, I, I do it over shared meal 
and and you know food brings people together i mean i mean i'm also in the south right so mm-hmm. food is like a cultural thing and it brings people together and but like when i'm out at protests well when i was out at protests or at pride festivals i tend not to engage the people who who are you know holding the signs of god hates fags you know because it's not the time and the place because i believe in deep relational work and that would just be a transactional engagement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep, yep. And so the thing about doing it over a meal is it is it's relational and we're creating life together. And so a, a lot of my organizing is from the place of the relational and relationality is so important to me. And I, I think that's another thing that white people don't know how to be in relationship. Right. With well, themselves we don't know, or with others. Yes, that's what I was going to say. We don't know how to be in relationship with ourselves. Right. Again, introspection not being valued by right. our culture. Right. Ugh. Right. That's what I do. That's my word. And I want other people to be in it with me as much as possible. And I think I probably lived at least half my life. I'm 43 years old. And I want the next 43 years to count for something. And so... I'm willing to stake my life on this work. Yeah. And you are because of the weight that you carry with it, really. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. you. Yeah. I'm so motherfucking inspired right now. I can't even live. Um, (laughs) It's just just so awesome. And it's been interesting as the podcast has kind of shifted over the years. I've been getting so much good feedback on these these conversations about anti-racism and all of it. It's just... Could you speak to, because I know I do have people who listen who are very early in their journey with this. Can you speak to maybe the person who might be overwhelmed as fuck right now, right? Because you were talking about like sustainability and all these things. and, And I can hear some listeners being like, well, fuck, I can't shop at Amazon. I can't go to Starbucks. I, you know, I can't support the police. What the fuck do I do? Can you speak to the person whose white privilege is kind of overwhelming them right now? Yeah, well, let's just remember that let's not shut down when we hear that Amazon exploits their employees. Let's not shut down when someone says we need to defund the police. Let's just try to be present with our own feelings. And let's not go through a shame, like let's not do the shame spiral and get caught up in being ashamed of being white. This is, you know, I'm white passing. I have a whole bunch of stuff that I could say about my own self-hatred for being white passing and not being darker. But I finally realized like, this is an opportunity for me as a white passing person to actually stand for something different and to stand for justice. And so for the person who feels overwhelmed, ashamed, fragile, want to turn off the podcast and run away, let's just be present with our feelings. Our feelings are valid. And for the person who is like throwing their hands up, I don't know what the fuck to do now. I can't go to Starbucks and get my latte. It's not that I don't go to Starbucks, but what I have chosen to do is buy my coffee from a CSA that directly supports coffee farmers. And so I've spent a lot of time thinking about, okay, if I want good coffee, how can I achieve good coffee without supporting a system that disenfranchises people of color. 
So we just have to get imaginative. Mm-hmm. You know, like I stopped shopping at the national grocery markets like Kroger and whatnot. And I only buy organic food and I shop at Whole Foods, which is like Whole Paycheck. Right. And I'm even struggling with that because it was reported several years ago that Whole Foods employed prisoners in supporting the prison industrial Mm. complex. Mm. So I'm even having to rethink, how do I practice sustainability? How do I practice organic food? Because I believe our food is killing us. Yeah. That's a whole and other podcast. <laughs> that's, that is, that is. Mm-hmm. And, and we need food and we need clean water. So how do we achieve that? I mean, I really feel for the people who are like putting their hands up and like, well, fuck, I can't do anything. Right, right. And I know, I know it feels like that, but there are actually things that you can do to make little moves against destruction. And it just takes time to figure it out. Right. And that being paralyzed by it, that's part of internalized racial superiority perfectionism, right. which right. is designed by white supremacy. Yeah. Right. We just keep keep going in circles. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> well, we are coming to the end of the hour and I want to make sure that you can share with listeners where they can find you. I know you've written a book and you've got your podcast, so please share any and all of that. Yeah. So my book is called Activist Theology, and it's really my story of bridging together activism and theology. There is some Jesus talk in there. So if that's triggering, (laughs) you might want to skip over that chapter. Mm -hmm. But it's really a book that I tried to connect the dots for people. It is an academic book, but it's written from the place of story. So there are there are some complex themes in there, but it is story driven. It's on Audible, so you can hear me read it. We have our podcast called the Activist Theology Podcast, which is where we just try to provide systemic analysis and lived experience, all in the effort of helping folks get their hands dirty. So if you're new to the journey of figuring out how to become anti-racist and practice that anti-racism on every day, you can check out our episodes there. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at irobin or at irobin.com. That's my website. And that's the letter I-R-O-B-Y-N. And I mean, I'd love to hear from folks on how they're feeling about this episode. I love being on the journey with people. I love I love corresponding with people. Um, if you follow me on Twitter, I work to respond to everybody who follows me on Twitter because I believe this is about conversation and you know, celebrity culture is toxic. And so <laughs> I, I'm trying to use my platform for good mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. for healing purposes, which is why I interact with everyone who, you know, follows me. Yeah, that's amazing. And I want to put a plug in for the podcast too, because I know I have found within myself, sometimes I'm like, oh, well, I just want to listen to fun podcasts. Even though it's serious material, just your relationship with Anna alone is just joyful and playful. And so if only that, (laughs) go listen to it. But it's not it's not that like serious, like heavy all the time. I really applaud you for doing that. Yeah, no, it's it's fun. Anna and I have a good time and we're radically different. She's a cis white head person and I am not that. (laughs) And and we have a good time bridging together and finding our togetherness. And she's one of my best friends. And, you know, she makes fun of me and and loves me. And we're trying to make the world a better place. Yeah, well, you're kind of nailing it. Thank you. 
Yeah. Thank, thank you, you so much for being on the show. This oh, I'm, oh, thank you. So good to be here, Sarah. Yeah, I was I was honestly really weary today coming into this, but you've just inspired me and mm. energized me. So I oh, just great. thank you for that. Great. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Let's everybody take a deep breath. <sighs> that was a lot, right? It was a lot of information. It was a super important episode. And I know sometimes all that material can be really heavy, but if you've made it to this point in the episode, I want to congratulate you for starting the transformational work that absolutely needs to be done in order to dismantle white supremacy. So A plus for being here. So if you want to learn more about Robin and their work, you can go to our website at www.headhearttherapy.com podcast. Thanks as always to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye-bye.